Welcome, folks, to the Law of Self-Defense show. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for the Law of Self-Defense. Thank you. Thank you so much, as always, for your ongoing and very generous support. Today, we're continuing with our reading of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, a seminal U.S. Supreme Court decision on the Second Amendment handed down just in 2022. And we're wrapping up in today's show the majority opinion in Bruin written by Justice Clarence Thomas, the fourth of four parts of his Majority opinion and the fourth of seven parts of our entire reading of Bruin. So let's jump into that right now. Hey, folks, if you like this law of self defense content, and I know you do, that's why you're here, you may as well consider picking up a free copy of our best selling book, The Law of Self Defense Principles. It's a real physical book, it's not just a PDF download. You can check it out on Amazon where it's five star rated, over 1400 reviews, but don't buy it on Amazon. They'll charge you for the book and the shipping and handling. We only ask that you cover the cost of shipping the book to you. The book itself is free. You can get this book, learn more about it at lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. Only after the ratification of the Second Amendment in 1791 did public carry restrictions proliferate. Respondents rely heavily on these restrictions, which generally fell into three categories. Common law offenses, statutory prohibitions, and surety statutes. None of these restrictions imposed a substantial burden on public carry analogous to the burden created by New York's restrictive licensing regime. Common Law Offenses As during the colonial and founding periods, the common law offenses of affray, or going armed to the terror of the people, continued to impose some limits on firearm carry in the antebellum period. But as with the earlier periods, there is no evidence indicating that these common law limitations impaired the right of the general population to peaceably public carry. For example, the Tennessee Attorney General once charged a defendant with the common law offense of affray, arguing that the man committed the crime when he armed himself with dangerous and unusual weapons in such a manner as will naturally cause terror to the public. More specifically, the indictment charged that Simpson, with force and arms being arrayed in a warlike manner, unlawfully into the great terror and disturbance of diverse good citizens, did make an affray the Tennessee Supreme Court quashed the indictment, holding that the statute of Northampton was never part of a Tennessee law. But even assuming that Tennesseans' ancestors brought with them the common law associated with the statute, the Simpson Court found that if the statute had made, as an independent ground of affray, the mere arming of oneself with firearms, the Tennessee Constitution's Second Amendment analog had completely abrogated it. At least in light of that constitutional guarantee, the court did not think that it could attribute to the mere carrying of arms and necessarily consequent operation as terror to the people. Perhaps more telling was the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision in State v. Huntley. Unlike the Tennessee Supreme Court in Simpson, the Huntley Court held that the common law offense codified by the statute of Northampton was part of the state's law. However, Consistent with the statute's long-settled interpretation, the North Carolina Supreme Court acknowledged that the carrying of a gun for a lawful purpose 
per se constitutes no offense, only caring for a wicked purpose with a mischievous result constituted a crime. Other state courts likewise recognized that the common law did not punish the carrying of deadly weapons per se, but only the carrying of such weapons for the purpose of an affray and in such manner as to strike terror to the people. Therefore, those who sought to carry firearms publicly and peaceably in antebellum America were generally free to do so. Statutory Prohibitions In the early to mid-19th century, some states began enacting laws that prescribed the concealed carry of pistols and other small weapons. As we recognize in Heller, the majority of the 19th century courts to consider the question held that these prohibitions on carrying concealed weapons were lawful under the Second Amendment or state analogs. Respondents unsurprisingly cite these statutes and decisions upholding them as evidence that states were historically free to ban public carry. In fact, however, the history reveals a consensus that states could not ban public carry altogether. Respondents cited opinions agreed that concealed carry prohibitions were constitutional only if they did not similarly prohibit open carry. That was true in Alabama. It was also true in Louisiana. Kentucky, meanwhile, went one step further. The state Supreme Court invalidated a concealed carry prohibition. The Georgia Supreme Court's decision in Nunn v. State is particularly instructive. Georgia's 1837 statute broadly prohibited wearing or carrying pistols as arms of offense or defense without distinguishing between concealed and open carry. To the extent the 1837 Act prohibited carrying certain weapons secretly, the court explained, it was valid. But to the extent the Act also prohibited bearing arms openly, the court went on, it was in conflict with the Constitution and void. The Georgia Supreme Court's treatment of the state's general prohibition on the public carriage of handguns indicates that it was considered beyond the constitutional pale in antebellum America to altogether prohibit public carry. Finally, we agree that Tennessee's prohibition on carrying publicly or privately any belt or pocket pistol was, on its face, uniquely severe. That said, when the Tennessee Supreme Court addressed the constitutionally of a substantively identical successor provision, the court read this language to permit the public carry of larger military-style pistols because any categorical prohibition, that said, when the Tennessee Supreme Court addressed the constitutionality of a substantively identical successor provision, the court read this language to permit the public carry of larger military-style pistols because any categorical prohibition on their carry would violate the constitutional right to keep arms. All told, these antebellum state court decisions evince a consensus view that states could not altogether prohibit the public carry of arms protected by the Second Amendment or state analogs. Surety Statutes In the mid-19th century, many jurisdictions began adopting surety statutes that required certain individuals to post bond before carrying weapons in public. Although respondents seize on these laws to justify the proper cause restriction, their reliance on them is misplaced. These laws were not bans on public carry, and they typically targeted only those threatening to do harm. 
As discussed earlier, Massachusetts had prohibited riding or going armed offensively to the fear or terror of the good citizens of this commonwealth. In 1836, Massachusetts enacted a new law providing, quote, If any person shall go armed with a dirk, dagger, sword, pistol, or other offensive and dangerous weapon without reasonable cause to fear an assault or other injury or violence to his person or to his family or property, he may, on complaint of any person having reasonable cause to fear an injury or breach of the peace, be required to find sureties for keeping the peace for a term not exceeding six months with the right of appeal as before provided. Close quote. In short, the Commonwealth required any person who is reasonably likely to breach the peace and who, standing accused, could not provide a special need for self-defense to post a bond before publicly carrying a firearm. Between 1838 and 1871, nine other jurisdictions adopted variants of the Massachusetts law. Contrary to the respondent's position, these reasonable cause laws in no way represented the direct precursor to the proper cause requirement. While New York presumes that individuals have no public carry right without a showing of heightened need, the surety statutes presume that individuals had a right to public carry that could be burdened only if another could make out a specific showing of reasonable cause to fear an injury or breach of the peace. As William Rawl explained in an influential treatise, an individual's carrying of arms was sufficient cause to require him to give surety of the peace only when attended with circumstances giving just reason to fear that he purposes to make an unlawful use of them. Then, even on such a showing, the surety laws did not prohibit public carry in locations frequented by the general community, Rather, an accused arms-bearer could go on carrying without criminal penalty so long as he posted money that would be forfeited if he breached the peace or injured others, a requirement from which he was exempt if he needed self-defense. Thus, unlike New York's regime, a showing of special need was required only after an individual was reasonably accused of intending to injure another or breach the peace. And even then, providing special need simply avoided a fee rather than a ban. All told, therefore, under surety laws, everyone started out with robust carrying rights, and only those reasonably accused were required to show a special need in order to avoid posting a bond. These antebellum special need requirements did not expand caring for the responsible. It shrank burdens on caring by the allegedly reckless. One court of appeals has nonetheless remarked that these surety laws were a severe constraint on anyone thinking of carrying a weapon in public. That contention has little support in the historical record. Respondents cite no evidence showing the average size of surety postings. And given that surety laws were intended merely for prevention and were not meant as any degree of punishment, the burden these surety statutes may have had on the right to public carry was likely too insignificant to shed light on New York's proper cause standard, a violation of which can carry a four-year prison term or a $5,000 fine. In Heller, we noted that founding-era laws punishing unlawful discharge with a small fine and forfeiture of the weapon, not with significant criminal penalties, 
likely did not prevent a person in the founding area from using a gun to protect himself or his family from violence, or that if he did so, the law would be enforced against him. Similarly, we have little reason to think that the hypothetical possibility of posting a bond would have prevented anyone from carrying a firearm for self-defense in the 19th century. Besides, respondents offer little evidence that authorities ever enforced surety laws. The only recorded case that we know of involved the justice of the peace declining to require a surety, even when the complainant alleged that the arms bearer did threaten to beat, wound, maim, and kill him. And one scholar who canvassed 19th century newspapers, which routinely reported on local judicial matters, found only a handful of other examples in Massachusetts and the District of Columbia, all involving black defendants who may have been targeted for selective or pretextual enforcement. That is surely too slender a read on which to hang a historical tradition of restricting the right to public carry. Respondents also argue that surety statutes were severe restrictions on firearms because the reasonable cause to fear standard was essentially pro forma, given that merely carrying firearms in populous areas breached the peace per se. But that is a counterintuitive reading of the language that the surety statutes actually used. If the mere carrying of handguns breached the peace, it would be odd to draft a surety statute requiring a complainant to demonstrate reasonable cause to fear an injury or breach of the peace rather than a reasonable likelihood that the arms bearer carried a covered weapon. After all, if it was in the nature of the weapon rather than the manner of carry that was dispositive, then the reasonable fear requirement would be redundant. Moreover, the overlapping scope of surety statutes and criminal statutes suggests that the former were not viewed as substantial restrictions on public carry. For example, when Massachusetts enacted its surety statute in 1836, it reaffirmed its 1794 criminal prohibition on going armed offensively to the terror of the people. And Massachusetts continued to criminalize the carrying of various dangerous weapons well after passing the 1836 surety statute. Similarly, Virginia had criminalized the concealed carry of pistols since 1838, nearly a decade before it enacted its surety statute. It is unlikely that the surety statutes constituted a severe restraint on public carry, let alone a restriction tantamount to a ban, when they were supplemented by direct criminal prohibitions on specific weapons and methods of carry. To summarize, the historical evidence from antebellum America does demonstrate that the manner of public carry was subject to reasonable regulation— under the common law, individuals could not carry deadly weapons in a manner likely to terrorize others. Similarly, although surety statutes did not directly restrict public carry, they did provide financial incentives for responsible arms carrying. Finally, states could lawfully eliminate one kind of public carry, concealed carry, so long as they left open the option to carry openly. None of these historical limitations on the right to bear arms approach New York's proper cause requirement because none operated to prevent law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from carrying arms in public for that purpose. Evidence from around the adoption of the 14th Amendment also fails to support respondents' position. For the most part, respondents and the United States ignore 
the outpouring of discussion of the right to keep and bear arms in Congress and in public discourse as people debated whether and how to secure constitutional rights for newly free slaves after the Civil War. Of course, we are not obliged to sift the historical materials for evidence to sustain New York statute. That is respondent's burden. Nevertheless, we think a short review of the public discourse surrounding Reconstruction is useful in demonstrating how public carry for self-defense remained a central component of the protection that the 14th Amendment secured for all citizens. A short prologue is in order. Even before the Civil War commenced in 1861, this court indirectly affirmed the importance of the right to keep and bear arms in public. Writing for the court in Dred Scott v. Sanford, Chief Justice Taney offered what he thought was a parade of horribles that would result from recognizing that free blacks were citizens of the United States. If blacks were citizens, Taney fretted, they would be entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens, including the right to keep and carry arms wherever they went. Thus, even Chief Justice Taney recognized, albeit unenthusiastically in the case of blacks, that public carry was a component of the right to keep and bear arms, a right free blacks were often denied in antebellum America. After the Civil War, of course, the exercise of this fundamental right by freed slaves was systematically thwarted. This court has already recounted some of the Southern abuses violating blacks' right to keep and bear arms. In the years before the 39th Congress proposed the 14th Amendment, the Freedmen's Bureau regularly kept it abreast of the dangers to blacks and Union men in the postbellum South. The reports described how blacks used publicly carried weapons to defend themselves and their communities. For example, the Bureau reported that a teacher from a freedman's school in Maryland had written to say that because of attacks on the school, both the mayor and sheriff have warned the colored people to go armed to school, which they do, and that the superintendent of schools came down and brought the teacher a revolver for his protection. Witnesses before the Joint Committee on Reconstruction also described the depredations visited on Southern blacks and the efforts they made to defend themselves. One Virginia music professor related that when two Union men were attacked, they drew their revolvers and held their assailants at bay. An assistant commissioner to the Bureau from Alabama similarly reported that men were robbing and disarming Negroes upon the highway. Blacks had procured great numbers of old army muskets and revolvers, particularly in Texas, and employed them to protect themselves with vigor and audacity. Seeing that government was inadequately protecting them, there was the strongest desire on the part of the freedmen to secure arms, revolvers particularly. On July 6, 1868, Congress extended the 1866 Freedmen's Bureau Act and reaffirmed that freedmen were entitled to the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings concerning personal liberty and personal security, including the constitutional right to keep and bear arms. That same day, a Bureau official reported that freedmen in Kentucky and Tennessee were still constantly under threat. No Union man or Negro who attempts to take any active part in politics or the improvement of his race is safe a single day 
and nearly all sleep upon their arms at night and carry concealed weapons during the day. Of course, even during Reconstruction, the right to keep and bear arms had limits, but those limits were consistent with the right of the public to peaceably carry handguns for self-defense. For instance, when General D.E. Sickles issued a decree in 1866 preempting South Carolina's Black Codes, which prohibited firearm possession by blacks, he stated, The constitutional rights of all loyal and well-disposed inhabitants to bear arms will not be infringed. Nevertheless, this shall not be construed to sanction the unlawful practice of carrying concealed weapons, and no disorderly person, vagrant or disturber of the peace, shall be allowed to bear arms. For instance, when General D.E. Sickles issued a decree in 1866 preempting South Carolina's Black Codes, which prohibited firearm possession by blacks, he stated, The constitutional rights of all loyal and well-disposed inhabitants to bear arms will not be infringed. Nevertheless, this shall not be construed to sanction the unlawful practice of carrying concealed weapons, and no disorderly person, vagrant or disturber of the peace, shall be allowed to bear arms. Around the same time, the editors of the Loyal Georgian, a prominent black-owned newspaper, were asked by a colored citizen whether colored persons have a right to own and carry firearms. The editors responded that blacks had the same right to own and carry firearms that other citizens have. And borrowing language from a Freedmen's Bureau circular, the editors maintained that any person, white or black, may be disarmed if convicted of making improper or dangerous use of weapons even though no military or civil officer has the right or authority to disarm any class of people, thereby placing them at the mercy of others. As for Reconstruction-era state regulations, there was little innovation over the kinds of public carry restrictions that had been commonplace in the early 19th century. For example, South Carolina in 1870 authorized the arrest of all who go armed offensively to the terror of the people parroting earlier statutes that codified the common law offense. That same year, after it cleaved from Virginia, West Virginia enacted a surety statute nearly identical to the one it inherited from Virginia. Tennessee essentially reenacted its 1821 prohibition on the public carry of handguns, but, as explained above, Tennessee courts interpreted that statute to exempt large pistols suitable for military use. Respondents and the United States, however, direct our attention primarily to two late 19th century cases in Texas. In 1871, Texas law forbade anyone from carrying on or about his person any pistol unless he has reasonable grounds for fearing an unlawful attack on his person. The Texas Supreme Court upheld that restriction in English v. State in 1871. The court reasoned that the Second Amendment and the state's constitutional analog protected only those arms as are useful and proper to an armed militia, including holster pistols, but not other kinds of handguns. Beyond that constitutional holding, the English court further opined that the law was not contrary to public policy, given that it made all necessary exceptions allowing deadly weapons to be carried as means of self-defense and therefore fully covered all wants of society. Four years later, in State v. Duke, the Texas Supreme Court modified its analysis. The court reinterpreted 
Texas state constitution to protect not only military-style weapons, but rather all arms as are commonly kept according to the customs of the people and are appropriate for open and manly use in self-defense. On that understanding, the court recognized that, in addition to holster pistols, the right to bear arms covered the carry of such pistols, at least as are are not adapted to being carried concealed. Nonetheless, after expanding the scope of firearms that warranted state constitutional protection, Duke held that requiring any pistol bearer to have reasonable grounds fearing an unlawful attack on one's person was a legitimate and highly proper regulation of handgun carriage. Duke thus concluded that the 1871 statute appeared to have respected the right to carry a pistol openly when needed for self-defense. We acknowledge that the Texas cases support New York's proper cause requirement, which one can analogize to Texas' reasonable ground standard. But the Texas statute and the rationales set forth in English and Duke are outliers, In fact, only one other state, West Virginia, adopted a similar public carry statute before 1900. The West Virginia Supreme Court upheld that prohibition, reasoning that no handguns of any kind were protected by the Second Amendment, a rationale endorsed by no other court during this period. The Texas decisions therefore provide little insight into how postbellum courts viewed the right to carry protected arms in public. In the end, While we recognize the support that postbellum Texas provides for respondents' view, we will not give disproportionate weight to a single state statute and a pair of state court decisions. As in Heller, we will not stake our interpretation of the Second Amendment upon a single law, in effect in a single state, that contradicts the overwhelming weight of other evidence regarding the right to keep and bear arms for defense in public. Finally, respondents point to the slight uptick in gun regulation during the late 19th century, principally in the Western territories. As we suggested in Heller, however, late 19th century evidence cannot provide much insight into the meaning of the Second Amendment when it contradicts earlier evidence. Here, moreover, respondents' reliance on late 19th century laws has several serious flaws even beyond their temporal distance from the founding. The vast majority of the statutes that respondents invoke come from the Western territories. Two territories prohibited the carry of pistols in towns, cities, and villages, but seemingly permitted the carry of rifles and other long guns everywhere. Two others prohibited the carry of all firearms in towns, cities, and villages, including long guns. And one territory completely prohibited public carry of pistols everywhere, but allowed the carry of shotguns or rifles for certain purposes. These territorial restrictions fail to justify New York's proper cause requirement for several reasons. First, the bare existence of these localized restrictions cannot overcome the overwhelming evidence of an otherwise enduring American tradition permitting public carry. For starters, The very transitional and temporary character of the American territorial system often permitted legislative improvisations which might not have been tolerated in a permanent setup. These territorial legislative improvisations, which conflict with the nation's earlier approach to firearm regulation, are most unlikely to reflect the origins and continuing significance of the Second Amendment, and we do not consider them instructive. 
The exceptional nature of these Western restrictions is all the more apparent when one considers the minuscule territorial populations who would have lived under them. To put that point into perspective, one need not look further than the 1890 census. Roughly 62 million people lived in the United States at that time. Arizona, Idaho, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Wyoming combined to account for only 420,000 of those inhabitants, about two-thirds of 1% of the population. Put simply, these Western restrictions were irrelevant to more than 99% of the American population. We have already explained that we will not stake our interpretation of the Second Amendment upon a law in effect in a single state or a single city that contradicts the overwhelming weight of other evidence regarding the right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. Similarly, we will not stake our interpretation on a handful of temporary territorial laws that were enacted nearly a century after the Second Amendment's adoption, governed less than 1% of the American population, and also contradict the overwhelming weight of other, more contemporaneous historical evidence. Second, because these territorial laws were rarely subject to judicial scrutiny, we do not know the basis of their perceived legality. When states generally prohibited both open and concealed carry of handguns in the late 19th century, state courts usually upheld the restrictions when they exempted army revolvers or read the laws to exempt at least that category of weapons. Those state courts that upheld broader prohibitions without qualification generally operated under a fundamental misunderstanding of the right to bear arms, as expressed in Heller. For example, the Kansas Supreme Court upheld a complete ban on public carry enacted by the city of Salina in 1901 based on the rationale that the Second Amendment protects only the right to bear arms as a member of the state militia or some other military organization provided by law. That was clearly erroneous. See Heller. Absent any evidence explaining why these unprecedented prohibitions on all public carry were understood to comport with the Second Amendment, we fail to see how they inform the origins and continuing significance of the amendment. Finally, these territorial restrictions deserve little weight because they were, consistent with the transitory nature of territorial government, short-lived. Some were held unconstitutional shortly after passage. Others did not survive a territory's admission to the Union as a state. Thus, they appear more as passing regulatory efforts by not yet mature jurisdictions on the way to statehood rather than part of an enduring American tradition of state regulation. Beyond these territories, respondents identify one western state, Kansas that instructed cities with more than 15,000 inhabitants to pass ordinances prohibiting the public carry of firearms. By 1890, the only cities meeting the population threshold were Kansas City, Topeka, and Wichita. Even if each of these three cities enacted prohibitions by 1890, their combined population, 93,000, accounted for only 6.5% of Kansas' total population. Although other Kansas cities may also have restricted public carry unilaterally, the lone late 19th century state law respondents identified does not prove that Kansas meaningfully restricted public carry, let alone demonstrate a broad tradition of states doing so. 
At the end of this long journey through the Anglo-American history of public carry, we conclude that respondents have not met their burden to identify an American tradition justifying the state's proper cause requirement. The Second Amendment guaranteed to all Americans the right to bear commonly used arms in public subject to certain reasonable, well-defined restrictions. Those restrictions, for example, limited the intent for which one could carry arms, the manner by which one carried arms, or the exceptional circumstances under which one could not carry arms, such as before justices of the peace and other governmental officials. Apart from a few late 19th century outlier jurisdictions, American governments simply have not broadly prohibited the public carry of commonly used firearms for personal defense. Nor, subject to a few late-in-time outliers, have American governments required law-abiding responsible citizens to demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community in order to carry arms in public. The constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right, subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. We know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to government officers some special need. That is not how the First Amendment works when it comes to unpopular speech or the free exercise of religion. It is not how the Sixth Amendment works when it comes to a defender's right to confront the witnesses against him, and it is not how the Second Amendment works when it comes to public carry for self-defense. New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment in that it prevents law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms. We therefore reverse the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand the case for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. Concur by Alito Kavanaugh Barrett. Okay, folks, that was it. That was the end of Justice Clarence Thomas's brilliant majority opinion in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. In our next show, we're going to cover the concurrences, the concurrent opinions written by Alito, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Those will all be covered in the next show. I'll see you all there. If you like this kind of content, and I know you do, that's why you're here, you may as well consider becoming a Law of Self-Defense member. It's dirt cheap to at least try it out. You can get a two-week trial membership for only 99 cents. Just go to lawofselfdefense.com slash trial to sign up for that. In the unlikely event you don't like it and you'd like your money back, we'll give you a 200% refund. Most people, almost everyone, stays a member. And just being a standard member of Law of Self-Defense is dirt cheap. It's only about 30 cents a day, less than $10 a month to be a member of Law of Self-Defense. Get unlimited access to all our members-only content. It's the only way to have your comments and questions on live streams be addressed by me. Uh, You get a members-only podcast. Much of our content is limited, so only members can access it. Get all that and much more at lawselfdefense.com slash trial. Just try it out for two weeks, 99 cents, 200% money back guarantee. It's a negative risk opportunity. I hope you see you as a member real soon.